0: Released on Sunday, April 20th, 2014, in St. Louis, Missouri. This Agile Life, episode 45. 50 Shades of Metric Gray. Our exclusive sponsor tonight is Codeship. Codeship is continuous deployment made simple. Try Codeship for free. Setup only takes three minutes at codeship.io. The software industry transforms more and more every day.
1: Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today are my co-hosts on Twitter, Craig Buchek. Craig Buczek. How about that? Hi, everybody. I like the way that works. That's easy. Is there an echo in here? Yes. Is there, oh, I was supposed to say, is there an echo in here?
1: I screwed <laughs> it up. The Agile Factor on Twitter, Jason Tice. Hey, John. I am so inspired to improve today now that I've received my top 10 picks from thisagilelife.com. Thank you for sending that to me.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Agile Atheist on Twitter, Lee McCauley. Hi, guys. Hi, Lee. How are you? I am doing well. All right, guys, let's jump in and get started. We are going to discuss a few things that Jason has teed up for us tonight. He calls them, it's the little things that really matter. Jason, you want to kind of walk us through the first one here that you wanted to discuss?
1: Yeah, so this first um, idea, it comes to, it was inspired actually by a discussion I had with Lee recently. And actually, it's funny, John. You asked me to tell Lee tells the story best because Lee came to me asking for some advice about um, simple things that that he felt would you know help a project improve. But then we got into this discussion because these are common sense things, yet all of us that do this why do we find ourselves in projects where effectively we aren't following our own advice and our own best practices so so lee could you describe for us i guess kind of the challenge and and I, as you know i have a few ideas we can talk about uh, but maybe uh john and craig can
2: chime in with a few of their ideas also right so the team that i'm currently on as a lot of teams do, we have to, uh, deploy, we're deploying continuously, and we need to, at some point in the not so distant future, be deploying to a production server, which means we can't blow away our database every time, like we do on our local dev boxes. So, we need some way of doing a, a migration like uh, we see in Rails does it really well. But, of course, this project is a Java project with a MySQL backend, so we're talking standard SQL stuff. And uh, there's not a, a really good way in Java to do that that I'm aware of. And I'm, I know that there are probably good tools out there, but we end up doing these ad hoc things that feel like they're going to break at any moment. So so to me, Lee, this
1: is and of course when we get to picks later, as everyone knows, and if you're listening right now, you're probably saying, Oh my god, I know this great tool that's out there, which we'll get to that later, which because there are tools that have solved this problem. But to me it's a discipline perspective. It's saying that you know, if you have this database, you have to understand you need to maintain the life cycle of that database and say that, you know, in my development environment, I might be at one version. In my production environment, I might be at another version. It might be behind development because production might be behind. And you've got to have continuity to go forwards and backwards to any configuration out there. And that's that's a discipline that you as a team, you have to agree to support regardless of what tool you're using.
0: This isn't a new problem, right, Lee? I mean, this is something we've struggled with for years and years and years, and even before Agile.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is one of those things that comes up on practically every project that I've been on for the last 10 years, and different teams solve it in different ways. In a lot of cases, if you're in a, a high corporate environment, then you've got an entire team of DBAs that kind of structure this and to some degree take some of the so, some of the heavy lifting off of the developers, and the developers then are allowed to get lazy, but then they complain about the process that they have to go through for a release.
0: Isn't it, yeah. isn't it really just part of writing the code, writing the software to do the particular feature that requires this? It seems to me that Part of the definition of done for the, the story or the feature or however you've got it broken down would have to include changes to the database and then scripts that would migrate the data from and to and as well as a set of reversing scripts should there be a failure where you have to roll that back. Now just at its, at its barest minimum, those are the things you have to do. Whether or not you do that with a tool or a technology, I think is is the question you guys were discussing, but I mean that's the that's the basic set of steps yeah. that we're talking about. Yeah, right? John,
1: John, you're saying the same thing I was. Where it, to me, it's a discipline and it's a team practice. Where you know, you, if it's you know, definition done, or it's a working agreement that you know, anytime we change the database incrementally, we need to agree that we write a script to go forward, and then we write a script that we can go back. The other one that I'll just throw out there. Wait, before
0: you do though, Jason. Because I see Craig shaking his head over there, and I think he's got some input on this as well.
3: All right. First of all, when you say you need a script to go forward and a script to go back, you also need to run them both. <laughs> you need to go forward, you need to go back, okay. and you need to go forward. Good good uh,
1: clarification. So. We,
3: we run into that fairly often, actually, where we didn't test the down, and then when you need it, it's not there. So if you didn't test it, it's not there. Just like if you don't test your backups for storing, you don't really have backups. So that's one thing. I do use Rails a lot. Some people I've heard have used the migrations from Rails in Java projects. Um, so that's one idea. I do actually have a problem with the migrations in Rails. And that's the difference between data migrations and schema migrations. And they're, they're fundamentally different, but they're not treated differently in Rails migrations. And I, I don't really have an answer for that. But
0: if you are doing that kind of thing, you do need to worry about both kinds of things. What I think ends up happening in a lot of cases, Craig, is that teams are afraid to do this sort of activity because it's scary. And the reason it's scary is because you don't do it often. So the way to make it less scary is to do it all the time and write it in an automated way so that it's just kind of second nature. It's something that you do all well, you know, the time. You know, you know John, bits.
1: what's funny about that, that was from life coaching. You know, there's this whole idea, they call it the fear reflex. And the way that you overcome fear is you exercise your fear reflex more frequently, you know, to you know, kind of fight fire with fire. Another thing to think about, Lee, that I would challenge you to do is even as a development team, Get used to running an environment within your, your, your development space that you treat like a production environment. So you put data in it and maybe you have, you, you have a build that will deploy to it, but it, it ensures that when it deploys, it does not drop the database to start to help the team understand what it's like to work in a live environment. Right. Early on in my career, I worked, I worked ops. And to me, if you work ops, it is a different mindset because you cannot drop the database, uh, because you can't lose the data. And so you rolled And you know, this was back before we had DevOps and tools to help with deployments. You know, so we would go to do a release. If it didn't work, we had to roll back because the data ruled. And if you couldn't lose the data and, I, and my wish out there for the development communities, explore what it's like to work in ops. And if you have the ability to spin up another environment that you deploy to and pretend it's production and learn how to support your system, how to roll patches, how to do hot fixes if you need to in that live environment so that as a team, the whole team can support that. And there's not
2: just the one guy who knows how to work in prod who gets to do all the prod support. So I, I totally agree with everything you guys are saying. And I think what I'm trying to get to is a place where the dev team for one thing, has those those habits in place. So they do write the, the scripts going up and down, and then they test them. And then some way for, I, I don't know what the best way is to turn that into continuous deployment, out to even production, where we automatically do those migrations, and we can pretty much be safe in doing them because we know they're not going to destroy data.
1: I think like everything else, and, and I've, I've heard this in a couple of podcasts and just listened to a few other, you know, speakers and agile conferences lately. The way that you get good at doing anything that's hard is you practice it. You feel the pain and then you figure out as a team how to overcome the pain. You know, an inspect and adapt from
2: Kaizen. So one thing that you told me uh, when we discussed this earlier that I thought was really good, that maybe you can talk to again, Jason, is uh, having a set time every week or on a very regular schedule where you have to do a release, whether that's a release out to production or whether it's a release to a demo site or whatever, you do a hard release and uh, you just force yourself to go through the pain of doing the full yeah. deploy every time, however that happens and yeah that, I, at the, at the I, beginning yeah. of a project you were talking about how that may be manual but over time as you feel the pain you know where to to fix that right yeah
1: and, and i think that's something where as teams uh, explore and some teams are uh, i know uh, lee and i are an environment where i think most of our teams are probably doing flow development or kanban more so than scrum and one of the things that's hard with, as you adopt flow is maintaining the cadence of all the rituals that Scrum provides us. So like, when is your demo? And next thing you know, if you're doing Kanban, Hey, it's been three weeks. We haven't had a demo. That's bad because they know feedback from your customer. The same goes for releasing to say that, you know, we're kind of doing this flow. We might be deploying to a staging environment, but we haven't done a real release because the customer hasn't asked for it. Well, I would challenge teams to say maybe there's the need to you know have an exercise or just practice doing it so when it comes up you know what to do and Lee what I was talking to you about was really from scaled agile you know scaled agile is all about you know having that you know that deliver and cadence idea where you're always delivering cadence and the idea is because when you're doing scaled agile you've got to integrate everything together that's really hard They want you to do that regularly, so effectively you get good at doing it, you minimize risks, and you automate things so you can do it faster and cheaper as you go throughout a project.
3: I want to caution people about practice makes perfect. It's the right kind of practice that makes perfect. If you keep practicing the wrong thing, you're going to be perfect at doing the wrong thing. So practicing doesn't always solve your problem.
0: Well said, Craig. I think the toughest part here with any project is if you haven't been releasing frequently and all of a sudden you have some stuff that needs to go out, is overcoming that first time, overcoming that fear. So I get a lot of feedback from people where they say, hey, I can't release to production all the time. And we understand that, right, that not everyone can. But if you establish an environment, just like Jason said, that's a pre-production environment maybe it, maybe you call it your qa environment or you call it your staging environment and even if you and the development team own that environment you should kind of put it on a little bit of a pedestal and treat it differently and look at it as to us that's going to be like production we're going to treat it like production everything we do to it is a test run and a practice for when we actually deploy into production so rather than just you know taking liberties with that environment and cramming the software on it and cramming database changes in it, cramming data changes in it. Treat it really like it's your production environment and take the time to use your your method of procedure or your your SOP for installing to production. Use that on your staging QA environment so you can practice because it is scary, and until you become really good at it, you shouldn't do it. In production on your own
1: yeah and the thing john that i want to add to that and i'll joke you could probably comment on this indirectly is you know sometimes people say and you know this is where a team sometimes hits a wall because they're like hey we want you know a mock environment or we want a p2 you know that we can play with and you hit a resource constraint because your your organization may not have a computing hardware to support that you know or they may have, and they may have the budget to get it but you know these days as more and more things are being deployed to the cloud being deployed to amazon there's all kinds of different models that you can get an environment you can you know use a tool like chef to provision an environment you could bring your environment online deploy to it shut it down so it's not running. And then when you want to do your next release, turn it back on. And so what I would coach everyone is if you're in an environment, you're asking through these things and you're getting pushback from really from leadership to say that we can't support that from a computing capacity. There are things that you should be looking into in terms of ways to use providers and clouds to allow you to, to have this capacity to practice this and get good at it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't even think if you are resource constrained, keep in mind that you don't have to have a super-duper environment to do this in. You guys, you could take any environment, right? You could take somebody's workstation or, or whatever it is. is all, that, all that is required is that you use the same discipline, you use the same scripts that you're going to end up running in production when you go to that environment. But if you like, just like you said, Jason, if you spin it up on an EC2 somewhere or Elastic Beanstalk or whatever, and then tear it down right away afterwards. I mean, you can do that for a relatively low expense as long as your customer doesn't have a problem with you putting code out onto the Amazon cloud. You do need to make sure that it's a relatively close facsimile to your production environment. I mean, you don't want to go through trying deploying the software out to a Windows box if it's going to be on a Linux Ubuntu server or something, right? So. That's something to consider. But I think there's some options out there.
1: Yeah. And again, if you're on a team and you're in this case, this is actually be a great thing to, you know, if you've got questions, to reach out to us in our community for This Agile Life and ask questions because uh, a lot of the coaching and consulting I've done in recent years has been on stuff like this. The simple to statement, though, is, yes, it, it make. Cost a little bit to spin up another environment for this type of deployment testing. There's a whole bunch of thoughts about like capacity testing and having what some people call they call them is the, you know uh, I, how do you pronounce that acidity or that's like the end of capacity, having these other environments on demand so you can do performance testing more frequently. There is a cost to that. I'm not going to deny that. But if you think about the cost to recover if you have a problem, your cost upfront to test it in another environment and pay for that will always be less than your cost to recover if you have a critical problem in production.
0: Absolutely. Okay, Jason, was did that cover all of the all of that conversation? I think conversation? that covered what Lee and
1: I talked about. But Lee, does that give you some um, uh, some thoughts and some actionable
2: things that you can think about for, I guess, what you're working with and going forward? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I really want to try some of this thing, some of these things on uh, on a new project from the very beginning because I think they a lot of them have the best the most power if you start them early in a project.
0: That's a good thing that we can discuss a little bit further is it ever too late? Craig, oh, it's will-
2: never too late, but we've got well, uh, maybe it is. We've got 2 weeks left in our project.
1: Oh that might be too late.
2: <laughs> well, okay, okay, but
1: no, this but see Lee, I'm going to I'm going to push back here. And I'm going to say no. It is never too late because your software is going to go to production. It's going to go live. People are going to use it. There's going to be problems or there's going to be opportunities to enhance the software. And if you don't start investing it now and if anything writing those scripts to allow the information to be captured in an automated fashion,
2: I mean, good luck for whoever has to support or maintain that software down the road. I agree, but we have also lots of other things that we have to get done in two weeks. So we have to, somebody's got to decide what the priority is, and we can't do them all. So the, um, and I agree.
1: That's, that's fact of life. But to me, this, this gets back to the whole idea. It's, it's one of these simple little things that really matters. And it's the idea of saying if you adopt the discipline as a team to, you know, maintain the databases, if it's a code, basically, or it's a configuration asset, you it, know, it, is. It, it pays off, you know, and well, and maybe that's the, maybe that's the bottom line for this discussion to say that. As a team, just like we source code, we, you know, we treat it with a very, a very high degree of rigor. You know, it's in the repo. We branch it. You know, we do tests on it. If you're on a team that doesn't have the luxury of working with the DBA, ask yourself, you know, look your team in the mirror, look yourself in the mirror and say, am I maintaining my database like a code artifact? And if you don't, if you can't say yes, there's, there's an opportunity for improvement.
0: Here's a retrospective style question for you guys and maybe Lee's the only one capable of answering it at this point since it's particular to his situation, would it have changed the way the team operated overall, and could it have made you go faster if you would have spent time up front putting this in place?
2: Well, I think we tried. And we did it the wrong way because none of us on the team had a good experience on the right way to to go about doing it. So we we had the forward and we've done really well with forward migrations, but we haven't done the backward migrations and it hasn't hurt us yet, but it has caused issues. When people want to, when different dev boxes are reviewing code from a earlier in the, in air quotes story and okay, well, which version of the database am I going to now? And we do keep that in the, in the repo. So, uh, so basically everybody just blows away the database and runs the current set of scripts for that story and it always works, but that doesn't solve the go to production and don't destroy the database. We do have migrations scripts that theoretically should work, but they've never really been tested in a live way. How does so that that's make, the downfall.
0: And how does that make you feel?
2: Scared as hell. Exactly. Or as a colleague of mine frequently says,
1: I don't test my code much, but when I do, I <laughs> test it in production. <laughs> that's what all good teams that's do. Not. Blinky lights. <laughs> Oh, right. so hey and Lee, the only thing that I could think of as you're saying that is actually kinda of related to the, the and now that we've we've uh, murdered your topic, um the next one I know I threw on the list is a little thing, is if you're doing deployments, time them. Like literally get a stopwatch. And I, when I coach teams, I like to use like the old school, like track and field stopwatch, like like literally like a, you know, like a one you wear around your neck. But say, okay, we're going to deploy to staging. We're going to deploy to prod. We're going to time it. So you actually have some cycle time data about how long it takes. And once you have that data, you can have all kinds of discussions in a retro about, wow, it took us six hours to deploy to staging today. What can we do to make that not take six hours of either a person or a pair working on that so we can be, we can, you know, we can complete more stories? Hey, Jason, I think you may have taken
3: the coaching, uh, a little too far if you have the coach's stopwatch.
1: I, I just think it's fun. But, <laughs> but more often I, I've like walked in, um, and in the environment where I sometimes walk in and I do team checkups. So I'm like, Hey, what are you guys all doing right now? I'm like, Oh, these two guys are working on updating the, the demo environment. How long have you been doing that for? Oh, we don't know. We've been working on it for like since this morning. I'm like, okay i mean cuz that's that's an opportunity for improvement and automation and if anything to me it's like okay you know we literally maybe i mean i know teams that have lost every time they do an update to their demo environment cuz it's not automated it takes a pair 4 hours so that's a that's one 8 hour developer day you know in a, in a sprint or in a release and if you're doing you know updates You know, that's really one day of capacity that you've lost simply because you haven't automated that that, um, deployment process. If you add that up over time, that becomes significant.
0: You know, guys, since we're talking so much about continuous and deployment, I think it's a good time to welcome our inaugural sponsor to the show. Yes, that's right, folks. We have a sponsor for this show. It's Codeship. And Codeship is continuous deployment made simple. And, boy, I'll say it sure is simple. I just set up my current Node.js project on Codeship, and it was easier to set up than I ever imagined. Within a few minutes, my project was set up so that every new push to my repo triggered my test to run and then triggered my deployment to run, and boom, done. Deployment made simple. I was worried that Codeship wouldn't support Node.js, but fear not. Codeship works with most major development languages and databases. Codeship also integrates with just about every cloud service and hosting provider on the planet. And even if you are working on some exotic platform that they don't have an integration for just yet, they have a script option to allow you to roll your own integrations. If you need help getting started, the good people at Codeship will be glad to help you. Codeship has some of the nicest and most knowledgeable people you'll ever find, and they are so dedicated to testing and continuous deployment. Their blog at blog.codeship.io is amazing. I was looking for suggestions for how to test my Node app, And the best and most helpful information I found was on blog.codeship.io. Particularly in my case, there was a series of three video posts on using Jasmine with JavaScript. The good people at Codeship are passionate, and it shows. Software development is hard enough. Let Codeship make continuous deployment simple for you. Check them out today at codeship.io and tell them that this agile life sent you.
1: Okay, so I got a question on that, John. Um, since you've used the service, how do they solve this problem?
0: It's not necessarily solved for you. Uh, they're just a platform that makes it simple for your continuous deployment stuff to run. So if you have database migrations that okay. have to happen, they will run them for you. They don't have necessarily, quote-unquote, a solution. Their platform enables your solution to run effectively and efficiently and, and in the cloud.
1: Okay. I got that. I was, I didn't know, if uh, I guess that makes sense. And it, it goes back to, I guess, the whole genesis of this conversation that the, the team or the, the people doing the work specifically need to have the discipline to, you know, think about forwards and backwards or up and down. And, you know, Codeship is a tool that will consume that as well as there are, of course, there's probably lots of others, but if you don't have that discipline, then, you know, that's where, that's where the challenge sets in.
0: Absolutely. So you were starting to get into another topic there, Jason, before I interject it.
1: Yeah, I had another topic and, and mine is something you guys can comment on. And this is interesting because, you know, I've, I've been asked, uh, to help some teams recently and, and they, they're kind of trying to, they're trying to substantiate what they're doing. And so a lot of times I'll show up they're like, well, you guys have any metrics? They're like, well, no, we don't really have any. I'm like cycle time or anything or, you know, they might have story points, but they don't have any real solid, what I like to call scientific metrics about what they're actually doing as a team. And a lot of times, I guess I get involved with these teams because they're having a problem and they want to do something about it. And I guess my request or my challenge, and I'll throw it to you guys, is saying if we know this and we know teams get into problems, why don't teams take it upon themselves to start capturing some baseline metrics about their overall performance and operations and maintain that throughout their project so when they have a problem, they can look to the data and they can say, hey, this is my current cycle time. I want to improve it by this much. Or, you know, right now we've got, we're have got working on testing. So our code base has, has test coverage of 50%. We want to improve that. So, you know, we're going to set a goal as a team. We want to raise it to 60% in the next three sprints. Why do teams not do that? That's what I'm struggling with. And as a coach, I'll come in and I'll help and we'll get the metrics going. But what I'd love to challenge teams to do is to start doing the metrics up front so the data is there when you need it. It's Am I crazy? We,
3: well, we don't, we don't know what to capture. I mean, developers are bad at metrics in the first place, right? All right. Maybe people are bad at metrics in the first place. Most people. We don't know what to capture. We don't know what we're going to need in the future. Now you should choose the last responsible moment to make a decision on something like what mat- metrics to capture. But unfortunately,
0: the last responsible moment was before you knew you needed them. Right. So we need to define in this case, what the last responsible moment could be. And I think in everybody's situation, it's going to be something different. Uh, If you're fortunate enough to be using an electronic tool, hopefully you'll be capturing metrics right from the day one out of of the box, right? But if you're doing something manual, like you said, Craig, you don't know what you want to capture. And it's cumbersome to just try and capture, like, everything. I've done that with manual boards, and it's very hard to keep going because people are like, why am I doing this? Every time I move a card, I have to do this. John, you're an idiot. We're never going to use this data. And I was trying to do a voice because I'm jealous because Jason has the big enterprise voice, you know, that he he can do. So.
1: And, and who was that, John? Can I just ask?
0: Um, I'm thinking of a particular person, but I don't want to say the person's name. No, no,
1: no. Just a, a, st- a stereotype. Oh, what was the persona? <laughs> Yes, the persona.
0: A developer who does not value metrics. <laughs> really? Of which we
1: know there are many. <laughs> yeah. but Okay, but here's what I don't get is, I I mean, maybe, I, you know, and I know John in the intro, it's like, welcome to this agile life. We talk about agile and lean. You know, it's the the German techno music. <laughs> if you know lean, and at the core of lean is...
2: Kaizen and continuous improvement. Right. By, by the way, just to talk about voices, for those people who don't know, that British female voice is actually John at the beginning of the shows. <laughs> oh, That's really?
0: Pretty impressive, isn't it, Lee?
2: <laughs> oh, okay.
1: But okay. But so back on back on track. So if we're doing lean, <laughs> we're about continuous improvement. I mean, am I in left field to say that there's a, just a need to say here's a certain and, and to me I'll start because Craig said, what do we measure? What if we just measure the cycle time to get work done? That way we know what we're doing. We've got a baseline. We can start there. And, you know, as we've talked a lot about testing, and if you want to do continuous deployments and management, you have to do testing. You need to do some some level of measurement to say, how many tests do I have? Do I have sufficient coverage of my code base? Like, you know, in terms of do I have tests? Why would those two basic measures not add value to any team.
0: I think you're probably asking the wrong group of people because I know I'm I'm all in on metrics. I'll tell you what though what I think why I think people developers I think there's a couple of things to consider. Anything that you measure is going to adjust people's behavior, right? There's that the study that old study i'm sure you know this jason where the yeah. they turned on the lights real bright in the factory and then they watched the factory workers and those factory workers worked their ass off because they were getting watched right it had nothing to do with the bright lights had everything to do with people watching them so anytime that there's a, this new factor of you're measuring something people feel watched and so they behave differently And so the collection of metrics can cause changes in behavior. So we need to be careful about what we measure because it could change or drive behavior on a team.
1: But going back to lean, if that occurs, there's a bigger problem than metrics and whatever the team's problem is. And that is that the people who are changing their behavior are changing it because they do not feel trusted or respected as people, which is one of the key elements of lean. So, hey, we just want to keep some data about what's going on in the team. You're, in a, you're on an Agile team. You're in an organization. If you're doing it, if, you're, if you've if you truly bought into what it means to practice agility, to go back to when we talked to Dave Thomas, you know, so let's, let's keep Agile out of this, then, hey, the metrics are there to help us improve, and they're not going to be used against us. I mean, don't get yeah, me wrong. I, I was go just going to bring go that
3: up. People do feel like they're going to be used against us a lot of the
2: time.
1: Well, that, that, that's bad leadership. Are. I'm gonna call it. That's bad leadership. Call it like it is. Sorry. You mean oh,
2: Agile can't fix that? <laughs> yeah. So okay, let me jump in here because I'm also kind of on the other side of this, and Jason knows this. I think I think he was baiting me. So here's my here's my thought of this. I am all for metrics as long as a I don't have to take them as long as somebody else is taking them. I'm not having to and they're actual or they're useful to me personally. If I see a use for them on a daily basis or on a regular basis where I can see that's benefiting me as opposed to some guy three levels above me that I have no idea what he's doing with the, he or she is doing with the data. I, if it's not helping me, I don't care. Don't make me take those, those things. Or if they're taken automatically or if somebody else is taking them, I'm all for metrics. Go for it. Just don't bother my process. That's pretty close to my feelings too. Okay. So you well,
0: don't want to, yeah. y- the main problem is you don't want to collect them.
2: I don't want to collect them if I personally am not affected by them, or if it's something that I don't feel that is useful, then it's busy work. It's yeah. something that is taking me away from my efficiency. Now, if someone say, oh, well, those are going to be great two months down the line. Bull crap. That's one of the things that Agile wants us not to do is do the things, you know, oh, let's, let's design for something that's two months down. No, you design for the story that's in front of you. And you might keep an eye on what's way down if it's, if it's really huge, but I mean, we don't, it's not like we don't do design, but you don't go too far. You don't, you, last responsible moment, right? This is the same kind of thing.
0: Sure, but within Lean, and with of course if you looked at this from a manufacturing mindset there would undoubtedly and i'm certain there are a set of base level metrics that you would capture and i think that that's what jason is ask, asking from a software perspective
2: and what if is, you can put that into the process automatically where it's gathered that's great so yeah. those those electronic kanban boards that's great let them capture everything they want i am happy with that yeah and Just, and, and like what i'd say lee is you know you know they this is a, a symptom of
1: i'll share i've seen some companies solve this really well and they've done it through i'll call it a little bit architecture because you know they have a tool and you really if you've ever had tools and i mean lee and i are in an environment where there are multiple tools in play which is challenging because we don't have any dashboards between projects we have to if we ever want to make a performance dashboard we'd have to literally aggregate the data manually from different tools which if you're running a corporate it shop there's a lot of value to having all your data and having a dashboard about your teams and that will keep data for you automatically. So uh, the other one is I've seen a lot of uh, where in corporate IT, you know, there's a lot of uh, where they'll have a, like a, a systems team and the systems team maintains the build system that all the dev teams use. So if you're doing Java, they've got it. And when they maintain that build system for you, it has instrumentation on it. So you get test coverage, you get all the stuff out of the board. And to your point, Lee, the team doesn't do anything next to you. you know, You've got graphs and charts and stuff that you can hang up and they're just there. Developers want to develop,
3: period. That's why Agile works. Because it lets developers do development work. Yeah. And not this other, oh, look at the dashboard. You know, I don't want to look at the dashboard. I want to program. I want to get stuff done.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that boils down to, again, like the way I've seen this done very well in, you know, other environments out there is people have, they 've invested the organization sponsoring development has seen the benefit for the the health of the organization, and they chose to invest in it so the developers didn 't have to do it and to exactly what Lee said, the data' is just there. You know, if you're an independent or you're on a smaller project, you may not have that luxury. And the challenge then to what really what Craig and Lee are talking about is how do you manage priorities between having enough data to justify And and Like as a coach, you know, I've been in scenarios where what are you doing this month? Hey, we're helping. Teams write tests, you know, it's been helpful all share to say, yeah, last month my code coverage was 50%. And once we trained people on TDD, we had more people contributing tests. We raised our test coverage to 70% in a month. That's a great story. What I think
3: we need is a starting point. We kind of need, you know, sort of, we've talked about it on this podcast a few times already. Not to necessarily today, but over the, the several podcasts we've had. And we sort of need this playbook to start out. You know, what metrics should I start out with? I don't know what I'm going to need in three months. So if someone could tell me what to capture that's easy to capture, I would probably start it with a new project. But I
0: don't know what those things are yet.
3: So, would. I'll ask you because
1: I think you know this, John. Do you know the metrics abstract from Scaled Agile? Not off the top of my That's, head. Okay. I didn't know if you knew that. Um, cause so from Scaled Agile, they have a metrics abstract, uh, that talks about, uh, really team metrics. Uh, there's, there's, there's team metrics. There's, um, code metrics. There's program metrics and there's portfolio metrics that have both quantitative and qualitative factors. I'll put it in as a pick. Um, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of data in there. The reason Scaled Agile has so many metrics is it's to facilitate the integration between the different teams on the release train. If you're not on a release train, you may not need all those. Um, so it can you could tone it down, but that's out there,
2: Craig, as a resource. Um, and it's, it's very comprehensive. Yeah. But that's just a list of, I mean, that, that is kind of answering Craig's question, but it not doesn't really help me because I don't care about what the metrics are that they want to, that people want to collect. I want to know how am I going to use this? Why is this important for me or? Am I going to be able to collect it without any change in my process? I can collect it automatically.
0: I think Lee has metricophobia.
2: Well, okay. No, um, I have busyworkophobia.
1: Okay, I, I think c- developers have that. You know. Okay, but Lee, you're 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 special. I'm I'm going to dive into this here because um, Lee. So you're you're a team lead. So Lee, Lee, the environment that don't Lee throw, and I are both the, we that we have team Don't
0: throw that in his face. What? don't well, throw okay. that in the Lee face. is the
2: leader. Um, so where do you think as a team... I- I'm Lee- a leader in the same way that uh, Olive Garden is Italian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many episodes with that have. have. we had
1: the servant leadership episode yet? Anyways, um, so <laughs> Lee is the servant leader of his team. And to Lee's credit, Lee is phenomenal at this. Lee is a great job of... He, Lee embodies servant leadership. You know, really helps empower people to be successful and stuff. But kind of, at least in our organization, one thing where it, it's... Actually, I've seen a few documents where it's a written responsibility of the team lead to ensure that the team has a motivating and a rewarding environment to work in. So Lee, I'm saying if you have this data and you can go to your team, you can say, Hey guys, look, here's our data that shows we're improving as a team or Hey, we changed these few things or we were able to, you know, do this and it didn't impact our performance. Don't you think that would be motivating to the people on your team? Or am I just – have I read too many management consulting books? I mean, tell me if I'm wrong.
2: Yes and yes. If I've got the data just available, sure. But if I'm having them uh, put a tick on a card every time they move it and it's some extra process that they have to remember how to do and that they aren't good at necessarily remembering how to do – then no, that's not going to be good. The data isn't going to be useful. It's just an extra thing that that gets in the way. But if it's collected automatically and I have it available, sure, that's great.
0: What if you made it fun or you gamified it? Like I know some people have gotten those old-fashioned time clocks. Remember when you worked at Schnucks or whatever and you'd go in there and you'd, you'd slide your little time card in and it would go kink and then it would put a time stamp on it?
2: That might be kind of fun. I don't know how fun it would have to be. For me, the most fun is solving problems in code. And so, if it doesn't involve that, then you're taking away from my time. I just, I mean, Lee. My challenge
1: is, I guess that it comes from being a little bit more on the business side. Sometimes the metrics are helpful to help those who are not familiar with the complexity of software development understand what's go. Yeah, understand what's going on. And if you don't have the data there, then they start to assume who knows
2: what, and... So now you just... you, Jason, you just argued for cover-your-ass metrics.
0: Yeah, that's not good either. Well, let's maybe back off of that position a little bit.
1: Well, no, but but that's that's a real-life thing. I mean, so, you know, justify your existence. So... You know, uh, Yeah, just- I'll, I'll
2: justify my existence someplace else. In- well, okay,
1: a- okay, but real life. <laughs> I'm going to talk real life business. So I have an email in here in my, in my inbox. It's from some company. I won't name them. I don't know if they they're soliciting here for Java developers offshore $20 an hour. Okay. I don't think anyone in the podcast here, developer, regardless of what you're doing, works here in the US for $20 an hour. I mean, we have a higher, we have, we actually, before we started there, we're talking about taxes. So there's, we have taxes, we have all this stuff. But on top of that, we all do practices that require skills and allow us to do quality work that costs more than $20 an hour, but yet that's out there in the market. And we have to compete with that for
2: business. So let's be as efficient as possible and not get in the way with metrics that keep us from uh, from doing our work.
0: Yeah, so but back to the original point. Aren't there at least a couple of, of things that are worth capturing because they will have value immediately from the perspective of getting the team into the room for a retro and talking about how we're doing? And maybe it's just one thing. Maybe it's just how long it takes for a story to go from, we start at the story till we finish the story.
1: Yeah, simple cycle time. I would yep. like to hear. I would like to hear Lee tell me why
2: not, even
1: if he has to track it with a time clock.
2: I am not against simple cycle time, especially if you're using an electronic kanban. Those are easy. I can definitely go with with cycle time. And in fact, if you're doing a no estimates kind of a project, which we are, then cycle time is a pretty much the only metric you have to have.
0: That would be at least my minimum. I would say, bare minimum, I'd like to know that one.
1: What about tests? Test coverage, um, distribution of test coverage throughout the test pyramid or the four quadrants, whichever one you want to use?
0: I think you start to get into a slippery slope there a little bit. Sorry, Lee, I didn't want to talk over you there. But I think that test coverage to me is more, I'm more interested in, what your trend line looks like for your test coverage than I am in the number itself. So you yeah, could yeah. actually get rid of the number and shove it up your metric bucket, something <laughs> or another.
2: No, no, John, I, John, I agree. And, yeah. And, so. And- so, so I'm tracking, I, I will, the,
0: tracking the trend is, is important to me, but not the number itself.
2: So to me, the tracking the trend is only important if you think there's a problem. If your team is feeling some pain around there, or if you think if somebody on the team or the coach says, you know what, or whomever says, I don't think we've got good test coverage. If someone is worried about it, that's when, okay, let's see if we can quantify this, get a baseline, and then figure out how we can improve it. But that's when you do that when you have a pain, not just for the heck of it.
0: And assuming you're, assuming you're writing your code with tests, even if it's test after or test before, if you have a rule, if you have a working agreement on the team that says we're going to use tests, then the trend is still important because you don't want to add a significant amount of code to the code base without tests where that number would start to drop. So that's a problem, regardless of whether you you've uh, you've felt it or not I think
3: so I do like to have test coverage metrics, and that's one of the things that's pretty pretty much automated, right? You have your automated test and it's you throw something in there it's going to tell you what your test coverage is to a first approximation, there's different levels of of code coverage, but to a first approximation, because tests are there to give me confidence that I'm not breaking something that's one of the things tests provide. Um, if you do test first development, then actually they provide a, some design direction. But other than that, I, I want to know test coverage because I want to know how much confidence I can have to make changes to the code without worrying
2: about breaking anything. So, so Craig, let me ask you, if you are doing test first and you feel like everything you've written is fully covered, then why do you need a number there to tell you what you already know? I guess the point is,
3: Usually, I do have a problem where I don't have confidence. Um, so that's why I want to know how much confidence to have.
1: Or an analogy, Craig, that I'll pitch to Lee and, and challenge you to try to experiment. I want you to go to the airport, okay? I want you to get in an airplane, and I want you to take off without any instruments, so if you've ever flown a plane before and you've taken a flight lesson, you know, the instructor always talks about landing with instruments, landing without instruments. And if you become a pilot, you know, one of the skills you have to learn how to do is navigate without instruments. The first time you fly the plane with instruments, you have all this data. It makes it easy. And to what Craig said, you, you get that feedback. Oh, I know what my airspeed is. I know where I am. And as the pilot, you can make informed decisions. Now, if you're a good pilot and you're flying like a, a plane that's not all electronic, you can uh, also fly the plane without the instruments, you know, kind of, you know, feel the feedback on the stick and stuff, but it's hard. I don't know why, to, again, if you try the experiment and you actually fly the plane, you'd be like, oh my goodness, now I'm going to land the plane without the instruments this time? That's really scary because it's hard. The data is helpful. The data is there to fix problems.
0: And it's automatically gathered for you in an airplane.
2: Well, I,
1: I think, although no, I'm not a pilot. Have, they, they didn't have to build all that stuff in the airplane. They could just put an engine and a
2: throttle yeah, the, and, and a the, stick. But the pilot doesn't have to keep track of it manually themselves while flying the plane. Hey, well, Bob, I think we've got a
1: It's the same problem we get. When we're talking about the database. It's something that, or sorry, like releasing a production. It's something that it should, you got to automate it. If you don't automate it, you're going to have pain. And if you automate it up front, you will, be had a longer time to recoup the benefits and the efficiencies that are achieved by the automation. I love it when
0: we talk about metrics and are you about metrics because I learn new things every time we do it and different perspectives. And it's just beneficial to me because I can see both sides of the coin. I can totally see myself in like a, a VP or a senior director's role or whatever, and they want to see metrics, right? And I, I can totally see myself as the developer who he or she just wants to write cool code, wants to write good code and do a good job, and is tired of putting that tally mark on the card or is, is tired of keeping track of the metrics and just wants to get some stuff done. So I think this is a valuable conversation. I don't think that there's a right answer. I don't think that there's a wrong answer. There, it's 50 shades of metric gray.
1: Well, well, John, the other thing that you're being sensitive to, and to me, this is a fact of life, and I, th- I think it's actually a good thing to bring up, is that, you know, developers do really want to be creative. Um, if you are a developer and you take a personality test, you're probably going to be really technical. Or you're going to be really creative. That's where most developers pan out. You're not going to be very much on the managerial side of them. It's a known behavior pattern or behavior trend for people in, in the software field. Are you telling me I'm not management material? I don't know, John. You, we should all take a, like a behavior test and talk about it on the podcast. It would be hilarious, actually. it be
2: very, actually, hilarious and very eye opening, I think, for ourselves and the audience. All, all but, that data is protected by uh, doctor-patient privilege. Thank you very much. Not if we go uh, just do it me.
1: online for fun. Huh? <laughs> How does that work if you
0: have a doctor on the podcast? Oh, or do you, is the podcast doctor-patient? For
2: I don't have my not that kind of doctor shirt on right now. Oh, okay. But what I was going to say, John,
1: is that people need to be intrinsically motivated to follow through what they want to do. If to Lee's point, you know, you want to write software – This idea of making you mark, you know, do tick marks or use the punch card or whatever is not going to work. So it's important to be mindful. And and sometimes it's people say, well, why is the team struggling? And, And I look at the team and I'm like, well, the team doesn't have a person on it who is concerned and sees the value that having the metrics have. So they don't have that. And it's really tough. And I've seen teams struggle when leadership gets involved. Well, someone needs to track the metrics and, but no one wants to, to these points. So to me, that's, you got to, sometimes if you're on a team or you're coaching a team, you got to look around and say, Hey, for this team to be successful, you know, do I have all of the key roles and the key activities that the team needs covered and understand the best way to get those covered and ensure they get done is to find people on the team that mesh together well and that are naturally motivated to do those activities. This week's hottest picks. All right, guys, it's time for our
0: picks, and I'll go first tonight. So I my first pick is kind of self-serving because I did something with my car recently. So I think developers should do their own minor car repairs. I just recently replaced a rear-view passenger-side mirror on my, on my car because I backed it into the garage, and, and so I had to fix it. And uh, I guess I didn't have to fix it. But I figured, you know, it's just a process. It's just a a series of steps to to do this sort of a thing, and I'm a smart guy. and, And I'm really, really scared of cars. Like, I barely know where the gas goes. I barely know where the oil goes. I don't mess around with anything, really, with cars. But I'm like, I can figure this out if I just do a little research. And I did, and it was pretty cool, and it was very rewarding. Okay, so my second pick is, since we were talking about database stuff, Uh, a book by Scott Hambler called Agile Database Development. And I think that there's probably a few gems in there that everybody could find beneficial and helpful as you're dealing with databases in your daily lives. Of course, those are kind of uh, par for the course. All right,
2: guys, those are my
0: picks. Let's go to Lee for his pick tonight.
2: So, my pick is, uh, is one for those people that are writing, uh, websites and doing really like, uh, HTML5 stuff, the newest, latest technologies. And you really need to be able to test that, that stuff on every browser and OS if you, if you really want it to work. Or you, some people would say just use Chrome. But anyway. There is a, a really cool tool out there uh, Or service called crossbrowsertesting.com And you can essentially say I want to test my website On any number of A thousand or more different uh, OS, browser, and plug combinations So it's uh, it's actually very cool
0: Great, Lee, thanks Good pick And let's go to Craig for his pick tonight Got two picks uh, First one is called
3: Shortcut Foo I just found this today it's basically sort of a little training thing, a little um, you could use it as a tip of the day for all kinds of things. It's got Vim, it's got Emacs, Sublime Text, Eclipse, and the IntelliJ family. I think it had Git in there, too, which is the only non-editor one. So cool little way to sharpen your uh, saw blades. Um, the other one is six programming paradigms that will change how you think about coding. It's got some interesting paradigms, concurrency built
0: in. It's got different things that you should take a look at and expand your mind. All right, good picks. And let's go to Jason for his set of picks tonight.
1: And so now that we've talked about the people and the process related to Lee's problem, we're going to talk about the tools. So for Lee, who was talking about database migrations, two tools out there that I have used both of them, and eh, there's pros and cons to both of them that will help you manage Rails-style database migrations outside of Rails or effectively maintain your database under strong configuration management. Uh, Flyway, uh, flywaydb.org, and uh, LiquidBase, liquidbase.org. They're each a little different. There's lots of uh, documentation and information from both tools about pros and cons. There's also some stuff on Stack Overflow. My simple advice is pick one, try it out for a sprint or two if you like it. Do a spike on it. If you don't, and maybe try the other one and then make a decision. So, and of course, Amos couldn't join us tonight, but Amos, if he had been here, I'm going to channel my inner Amos because, you know, Amos is an enterprise architect, just like I am, uh, whether he chooses to admit it or not. And Lee, stop using a structured database. Just use Mongo. This <laughs> all goes away. All goes away. We could erase erase the whole conversation, okay? (laughs) So, of course, if you you ever tried Mongo, try that too. It's a different beast. But you might find if you're having problems with a brittle database structure, you get a benefit if you get away from having a structure and you use NoSQL.
3: You are channeling Amos, uh, but you didn't have to insult him with that architect thing.
1: Oh, but he loves it. Yeah, he's an enterprise. He just, he's in denial. He needs, he needs to be some coaching. He's going to be a TOGAF guy. Trust me.
3: Uh, also, you should probably read Sarah May, MEI's uh, article on MongoDB. It's one of those things where you don't know the downsides until about two years
0: later when it's too late.
1: Oh, so maybe that's one of those little simple things that we just shouldn't use it in the first place.
0: <laughs> so that's a bonus pick from Craig. We need to put that link in the show notes, Craig.
3: Yeah.
0: All right, guys, let's tell folks a little bit about where they can find more about us. Jason mentioned a couple of things. He mentioned the online community, which folks can get to by going to thisagilelife.com slash community. Jason, you also mentioned a newsletter that we have, a set of agile resources that we email out. Usually takes maybe about an hour for the email to get there. Jason was complaining about how long the it email was. It took to me people.
1: three weeks. I was not a happy customer. But guess what? We fixed that bug. Yay!
0: We fixed the bug, which was the smart input device running the computer that didn't press the submit button after he entered his email address.
1: Oh, a slam. <laughs> there,
0: there was no bug.
1: I needed training.
0: You can get on our mailing list for that stuff by going to thisagilife.com, and you'll have an opportunity to uh, put in your name and your email address to get our 10 Agile resources and then our weekly newsletter. All right, guys, that's all we have time for today. Check out thisagilife.com for these show notes and for all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening, and keep living this Agile life.
1: This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.